You're listening to an Imagine More podcast. The presentation you're about to hear was recorded as part of the 2021 Get That Good Life Conference. We've split this session into three parts. This is part two. So now we'll just take a brief introduction to some principles of discovery, the process for determining characteristics of a good jump fit. Later in the presentation, I'll provide an example of discovery application using a before and after story. You know, we really can't proceed with planning anything that will be, that will be fruitful without first knowing the person. And oftentimes, this also includes the person himself learning some things about himself or herself. We're not interested in testing people or comparing people. We're interested in, in devoting time to know one person at a time where this person has interests related to work, what things need to be in place for this person to be at his or her best, and what is it that he or she has to contribute. And one of the things that we've learned, and those of y'all who've done this too, I'm sure you've seen the same thing, it's just a common sense strategy, and it makes sense to everybody involved a lot more than what we used to do, you know, what I was trained to do in the university, which are standardized tests. You know, this really makes sense to people. So I'm going to talk a bit about this idea of shifting perspectives. I'm looking at this from a frame of reference of what I studied in the university as a special education teacher, where a lot of my instruction, frankly, was around focusing how people with disabilities are different than people without disabilities. And it sure is a lot nicer to have a process where we get to focus on what people have in common with each other, like those slides I just showed of Keith and Sam, you know, in the body shop, of, or Dr. Lahaki and Daniel. You know, what kinds of things do they have in common? And spent a lot of time learning how to do a description and to pinpoint just what people can't do, whereas now, I get liberated to appreciate what people can do and learn more about what they have to offer and contribute. And I had lots of courses that were on diagnosing, you know, people's disabilities, but it sure is a lot more interesting to imagine what might be possible for people, even if it hasn't been seen yet. So in summary, discovery is something to do instead of testing. And it's not merely asking people what they want to do. As a matter of fact, it's one of the questions we say, do not ask and discover. <laughs> because it's fair to say that usually a forced choice is what most people are going to end up with because many people just haven't had enough experience to know the possibilities. And this is not just placing people into job openings. Rather, it's seeking to understand who is this person. So one of the things we know about all people, and this is especially true about people with disability, is that there's so much more to know than what's on the surface. You know, this is what a lot of times we we have when we first meet somebody, just kind of a, a snapshot, stuff on the surface. What discovery is designed to do, with a person's permission, obviously, is to learn a lot more, you know, to understand that this person on a much deeper level. And so discovery can help us build on what's been learned and uncover additional possibilities. Oftentimes, it's been the case with somebody having a disability that due to the functional impact of the disability, say around learning or getting around, or the social impact of the disability, other people's low expectations, 
or maybe even the person themselves' low expectations. All the disability stereotypes we're familiar with. That these things have made possibilities seem quite narrow. So discovery seeks to pull back the curtain, then to clear the fog around positive possibilities, seeking and exploring things previously not considered. So this is what we're wanting to learn, just in real broad stroke, broad brush ways of thinking. We're devoting time with people to understand things that need to be in place for the person to be at his best or at her best. So, you know, things like who are the coworkers? What are their ages? You know, what are their personalities like? How many? What's the consistency of their work within a business? You know, what kind of environmental considerations work for the person? What kind of time of day would be a good time of day to work? What's the nature of the tasks? Does the person do really well with tasks that are clearly done or not done? Or do they do well with tasks that have a range of correctness or both? All of these kinds of things, you know, we want to learn around conditions of work. And then interests, you know, are there things that you enjoy in life that could relate to your work somehow? And so we've really emphasized, this is really consistent with Mark Gold and things that he was teaching us 50 years ago, is that intrinsic interest, what kinds of things do people do without being asked? And very important to gain from this, what kinds of things do people have to contribute? Um, You know, sometimes related to a unique skill or a specific kind of knowledge that people have, or maybe a passion or a personal characteristic, all of these kinds of things. What is it that people have to contribute to employer that's uniquely about them, you know? And, and it's really wonderful, you know, to find things about a person you're working with in discovery, certain things that he or she can do that a lot of people can't do, and then finding ways to incorporate that in work. I will actually look at a couple examples of this after the break. So this is how we organize our time and learning. First, in familiar activities, especially things of interest. So, you know, I start off discovery with people saying, I really want to get to know you. And if we can start by spending some time together and you can show me things that you enjoy doing, that you're good at doing, that would be a, a really nice way to become acquainted. And then after I learn more about that, to try some novel things, some new things based on what was learned, just stretching the possibilities a bit. So one way is focused on with the person. It's a primary way that looks different with everybody, which makes, you know, keeps the work engaging and interesting. Now, it's just so much nicer (laughs) to have the luxury of working in this way with people. And then, you know, as time goes on, we'll, we'll... meet other people along the way, neighbors, family members, you know, maybe people from a person's faith community, whatever, but just personal or professional connections, people who know the person, and we ask if we can interview them. And sometimes I interview people, you know, it just depends on the circumstances, with or without the person that, you know, I'm I'm partnering with in Discovery. But you can get a lot of interesting insights and ideas from other people. It's another important piece of this. And then one of the last things to do, or usually we recommend later in the process, and and this is, you know, reviewing documents. And you know why I'm saying that, I'm sure. We need to be discerning about human service records because so often they are slanted toward the kinds of things that I studied at the university, toward deficits, or maybe 
you know, stating behavior problems without a context, something that happened 15 years ago and is still said to be a problem. This being said, important information can be gained from records. And so, you know, just even just identifying people's perseverance and struggles and hardships and lets us know what their vulnerabilities are related to their life experiences. And it's not unusual to find people who otherwise might not have been introduced, you know, maybe a teacher, maybe even somebody at a congregated segregated program who took a really strong personal interest in this person, be somebody good to contact or ask the person you do in discovery with, you know, any of this would be with the person's permission in terms of records you, you review, obviously, and people you talk with. And so really where we're aiming here is to organize the things we're learning with people in discovery. We're seeking that sweet spot where personal contribution, conditions, and interest intersect. And this goes along with what we learn in SRV theory to always look at the most valued of the options, look at the best possible of the possibilities that we come up with, imagining what could be, you know, not settling for what's already in place or can be readily seen. So I wanted to let you know there is a series of books offered through Mark Golden Associates, and I use these in workshops that I teach, and I think they're helpful to people. I do not get a commission on them, but I just want you to know that they're available. And if you're interested, you'll have my email. You can get in touch with me. I can tell you how to order them. But the blue book outlines the process of discovery. The gold book is about documenting what you've learned and what we call a vocational profile. The red book describes how to develop a visual resume with a job candidate as an alternative to a traditional resume. And then the green book is around organizing the customized plan for employment meeting. Now, after the vocational profile has been completed, it's a convening of people to look at how a person's conditions, interests, and contributions relate to tasks and what companies need those tasks and what contact people, people within that group, you know, organize for the meeting have. In other words, when you finish this process and you've done all of it, you have a list of potential employers and contact people that the person you're working with in discovery has already approved as someplace that they would like to explore and learn more about. It just takes so much of the angst out of job development when you really know, you know, you feel prepared to talk to an employer about what it is that somebody has to offer. And you have other people, you know, who have helped generate those ideas uh, that you may need to go back to for additional ideas. It's just a really lovely process. And it, it just made all the difference in my work for sure, which I'll be describing more about later. Okay, so let's get into um, a bit on this idea of when to get involved and when to step aside. So discovery was one of the major changes in evolution to open employment that, again, has been growing over the last 30 years, this idea been better understood, better practiced, starting with the person, not the job. So now we're going to take a look at one of the other primary areas of evolution, and that is discerning the proper role of the employment mentor on the job. So you've devoted time in discovery, and actually we're, now the very last section will, we'll kind of get into the customized employment. We're not talking a lot about job development today, but but this looks at, you know what you're looking for and you found it, then, then what do you do? So determining when to get involved and when to step aside, this is really an important issue. Is the primary perception of the employer 
of the supervisor, of the coworker, and even the person getting a job herself in open employment, is their primary perception, one, that the person's predominant role is that of a human services client, or is it that of an employee? So I'm going to go back to Jim and Gerana here. As a matter of a review, this is an early example of the look of supported employment that we call open employment in Australia, in Louisville. It shows Jim at Barrister's Restaurant, dishwashing, receiving all of his on-the-job instruction from Gerana, his job coach. Essentially, Gerana was responsible for learning the job from Barrister's employees and then teaching the job to Jim. And as Jim gradually learned the job, she would fade her support. So even though we were not thinking about it this way at the time, our approach of placing Jim and the way we provided support resulted in his predominant role being that of a human services client, um, Gerana's client, and he was seen more in that way than as a barrister's employee. I think he was perceived in both ways, but I think his predominant role was really one of our clients. And that's because anytime they wanted to teach him something, they would call us. And we would respond, you know, so, so it just, anyhow, that's what we did. Now, the same was true for this job with Tom, you know, the man at the keyboard performing data correction with Chris. Tom's predominant role because of the way we handled things was that of a community employment client, whereas the predominant role of employee would have been especially important for Tom. As a matter of fact, the fact that he ended up with the predominant role of community employment client didn't have a big cost for Jim, but it actually ended up having a big cost for Tom in the long run. So it's something that after, you know, I had a chance to study a bit, I could look back and think, man, we could have done that differently. So in 1988, Jan Nisbet and Dave Hagner coined the term natural supports in their paper, Natural Supports in the Workplace, a Reexamination of Supported Employment, challenging the traditional role of the job coach, as shown with Gerana and Jim in the prior slides. So almost a decade later, when there was more experience with this practice of natural supports, benefits were published, benefits were evident. You know, so you might note here that the more typical business practices were done, uh, the higher wages people had. Now, I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have guessed better integration and interaction with non-disabled coworkers. And the greater hours of direct support, like job coach support, was the less typical orientation and training, lower wages, less typical compensation packages. And this was true regardless of level of disability. Now, the last point is really an important takeaway. And this says that it's important to start on day one with typical employee involvement with instruction and support. In other words, you got to begin the right way. You know, these data show that if a person's employment features and conditions were atypical in the beginning, then their employment is likely to continue in an atypical way. It's hard to change the rules after you've already established them. All right. So many on this call I know have already have studied social role valorization theory. So SRV has this principle of the culturally valued analog that we shortcut to be the CVA. And it's one important way of parsing this role of an employment specialist, what we can be doing on the job. And in other words, a, a shortcut way of thinking about this is what happens for people who have a socially valued status, having the same age and gender and culture in the same life endeavor. So these would be CVA questions. How do people typically find fitting jobs? This isn't just people with disabilities. This is everybody. The question we're focused on here now, 
How do people typically learn their jobs? How are people compensated for their work? What's considered desirable work? And at the bottom, you can see that um, one of the major determinants in this is age. So this is a lot different from somebody in, you know, in high school or in their 20s or 30s or later in life like I am now. So here is a direct connection. I do want you to, to focus on this slide for just a moment because it's a direct connection between social wall valorization theory and the culturally valued analog and what we teach through systematic instruction with Mark Golden Associates around the same principle, beginning first with the study and understanding of typical instruction and support, honoring all of this to the fullest extent possible. And so the seven-phase sequence is how we think about this um, within systematic instruction. In other words, just because we know how to teach something doesn't mean that we presume to introduce ourselves to teach it. We first study, as in phase one, everything we can about how the company operates, you know, what's important to the culture of the company, who are the employees, you know, how do they interact with each other, what kinds of job methods are there, does everybody use the same method to do the same job, what's the terminology of the company. Then we learn what are the natural means for new employees to learn their jobs, and this would include things like new employee orientation all the way to how employees learn their tasks. And three, who are the people who teach new employees? And so with, with phase three, we ask people to teach us how they would teach a new employee the task that the supported employee will be learning. And so this not only helps us see how a person teaches, and we already know the person, we know how they learn, but it also does a lot to build social capital and relationships with people, you know, within the business so that when they do start teaching the person, they know that you know the job and you know that you know the job. <laughs> so phase four is where you actually decide who's going to do the teaching for what. And I'll be honest, you know, this would be different for Jim and with Tom, but we would want somebody because Tom would require an employment specialist to provide some of the instruction at some point in time, but we wouldn't want somebody who typically provided the instruction on the data correction task to be providing some of it initially. Then phases five, six, and seven, you'll need to come to a systematic instruction workshop to know how to kind of navigate those. But those are things we need to know if uh, plan A didn't go as, as we wanted. All right, so I'm going to share a before and after story. The same people are involved in these, Tim and myself. And here's the before and after part. The before part is before I knew about discovery and the culturally valued analog or the seven-phase sequence for determining my role related to instruction and support. And, and that would have been around 1991. So the story starts around 1987. And here's the backstory. Community Employment, the organization where I originally worked in open employment, had been helping the high school where I used to classroom teacher set up a work transition program. And Tim was a student in the high school class that I used to teach, but I wouldn't teach it anymore. I was at community employment. They asked me to help, or they asked our organization to help set up this program. So what we knew about were job placements, and that's what Tim got. He got a job placement in the work transition program at Shaw's Grocery. It was a little mom-and-pop business real near the school, and they wanted to participate with the school on this partnership. So this was positive in terms of the school's needs, but it wasn't great for Tim because most of what was learned about work for Tim at Shaw's Grocery seemed quite 
limiting for him. So these were some things that were learned, that he always needed a job coach, that he wouldn't do anything at the store unless one of our job coaches like Gerana or Chris or me, unless one of us was kind of lording over him, telling him what to do. He needed continuous supervision or prompts to stay on task. Now, I imagine, because I get to work a bit with, with other programs and other places, these are not unusual things to hear about people. So you may know somebody for whom this has been said to be true, too. Not only was this said to be true, it's what I said to be true and believed to be true. Tim couldn't sit still. He had a short attention span. He wouldn't watch for cars when crossing roads. So we were really concerned about safety issues with Tim. And he likes to talk a lot. So here's the next part of the story. Shortly after this, 1988, I left my work at community employment because I was offered a job at the University of Kentucky teaching other people about open employment. Now, after a few years of learning and study about open employment through the university, I found myself getting restless again because I'd had a chance to study about discovery. And I had a lot of training in SRV, social role valorization theory. And I studied a lot with people from Mark Gold and Associates. And so this time I started to get restless to get back into the work. I was in the really awkward position of teaching things that I had never done myself and things that I really wanted to do. So I left the university. I didn't go back to community employment. I just started my own little business helping people get jobs. I worked in, you know, I worked in conjunction with community employment, but I was just working for myself. And so guess who the first person referred to me was? You're right, Tim. Some kind of poetic justice here. So I knew I needed to resolve this thing about Tim always needing a job coach because I was not going to connect myself with Tim for the rest of his life and my life. And so, you know, I remember meeting with Tim and his sister Cookie and his mom in their living room. And I remembered that thing about always needing a job coach. And I thought, I think this discovery thing is worth a try. <laughs> We're going to do this, you know. And, you know, the thing about Tim, he really exemplified this idea that you couldn't ask Tim what he wanted to do because he wanted to do everything. He had a really strong work ethic. If you're out with Tim driving around, he would point at every business and say, I want to work there. I want to work there. I want to work there. He wanted to work, but he wasn't going to tell me where he wanted to work. You know, it was something that needed some discernment time with Tim. So now one thing that was said kind of as an annoyance, we're not kind of very much as an annoyance from his sister is that, well, I'll tell you something he does that nobody asks him to do. And that is he takes apart my VCR and radio. And so I was intrigued by that. Just kind of one of those little spark things that you hear in conversation. I was intrigued by, I wasn't real sure where it was going, but I didn't know that I needed to frame some different questions around Tim, some better questions than where can we place Tim or where can I place Tim? So these were some of the questions. And a lot of questions in discovery are challenging, you know, kind of conventional wisdom. What are times and circumstances when Tim does voluntarily sit still? Now, I was pretty sure that disassembling Cookie's VCR was one of those. But there are bound to be other times. So we're looking at work conditions here. When will Tim sit still? What are conditions under which Tim is attentive to dangers around him? What needs to be in place? We don't want Tim getting hurt. 
What does it look like for him to be safe? What are his interests and talents? What's he good at doing? And what is he interested in doing? Who are other people who would be interested in finding new stories, positive stories about Tim? Who would some allies be? And what brings out the employee in Tim? So, you know, within Discovery, I started off just by saying what I said, you know, can you tell me some things that you enjoy doing that, uh, that you're good at doing? And his mom said, Tim uses the weed trimmer in our yard, and I'm going to have him plant some flowers on Saturday. And I said, can I do it with you? And so I really did get to see Tim doing some things, you know, and um, I said, well, why don't you tell me what I can do to help? And so that was pretty interesting. And and, you know, Tim talked a lot about mechanical stuff and he had a, um, his dad actually was an auto mechanic and never learned where he really had some training with that. But, but we worked on a couple of things like, you know, putting new, um, ends on wires at his home, like for some lights and stuff like that. And he would sit still doing that, you know? And so that was interesting to me. We did some kinds of stuff like that. And so. I'm not going to get into all the activities of Discovery, but I'm going to tell you one real important one that helped a lot. It was really formational in lots of ways. And that was I I wanted to test out this mechanical aptitude and interest with Tim. I I was thinking it might just be some kind of innate thing even. I don't know, but, but nobody could tell me how he had learned how to be interested or good at that. So one of Tim's neighbors was this man named Bill. And I knew him because I used to have some Volkswagen buses, a couple of them. And Bill was a genius Volkswagen mechanic, and I knew that. He lived five houses down from Tim, but they'd never met. Now, Bill knew what I did for a living, and I explained to him that I was helping Tim, a neighbor of his, look for fitting employment, and that he seemed interested, and I thought he might have some talent in mechanical stuff. And I sure don't. So he said he was rebuilding a riding lawnmower, and he'd be glad for me to introduce Tim to him. And so, um, as it turned out, an important relationship was formed. And Bill said that Tim did seem to have a real knack for mechanical things. So, when they started out in the shop, you know, I went down to the shop with Tim. They were rebuilding the mower. And, you know, I would find some other things to do to occupy myself while kind of keeping an eye on what they're doing. And then, as time went on, Tim would go down there by himself and I would check in with Bill. And I'd say, So, what are you, what are you thinking, Bill? You know, you've got a really interesting shop here. And in some things Tim's done before, he has a hard time like sticking with stuff. He'll get up and walk around. Does he get up and look at other stuff in your shop? And he goes, no, he's always right here when we're working on it. And I said, so what do you think? He said, well, you know, how did he learn how to use tools? I said, I don't know. Does he pretty good with that? He said, yeah, he's, he's got a knack for that. And I said, so has anything ever been a problem? Or not gone well when, when you're showing Tim. He said, well, sometimes he gets in a hurry. He, he like accidentally tore a gasket once. But he said, yeah, I, I, I think he, he definitely has a mechanical aptitude. And, and um, you, you, you ought to be thinking about that with Tim. So like that experience and others, I started to frame things that I knew about Tim in terms of conditions, interest, and contributions, like we talked about in Discovery. And so one of the things was, related to an interest and a contribution is that the job should use Tim's mechanical interests and aptitude and needed clear parameters. So Tim did really well when he could tell when something was done, but not something that had a wide range of correctness, like cleaning something. And, you know, when's it clean? When's it clean enough? That kind of stuff. But like 
you know, it's done or it's not done. He did pretty well with tasks like that. So that would be a condition of tasks. The job shouldn't have excessive downtime because he is a man on the move. And, you know, he would find something to do and the something he found may not be constructive. So really a lot of work to be done, a high energy man. Okay, so, so the job shouldn't have excessive downtime, something other people would see as easy because, like me, a lot of people had believed, you know, just kind of seeing Tim, you just look at him and kind of size him up. I bet that guy couldn't do anything really hard, and I knew he could now. So not a job that would look easy. Um, talking should be part of the job because he's one of these guys who really does like to talk, and sometimes he likes to talk to the degree that it can create some social distance for him but at least not a quiet place. He needed a small and consistent group of co-workers, good model workers who would inform him of danger. So one of the things I was looking for was low turnover in a place and in a place where if there were things dangerous, that there'd be a consistent group of people who would know that Tim may need a reminder about that and they would be there to do it. And he needed to be in a laid back work culture. I think because I thought that because he was so high energy himself, you know, flexible, laid-back people, a condition of work, and the job needed to be close to home in terms of him getting there. So we're not really talking a lot about job development, but, you know, a primary way, if, if you go back to that CVA slide, how do people typically find jobs? One of the primary ways that people typically find jobs is networking with other people. And this was in Oldham County, kind of out with the cows, you know, out, outside of the city of, of Louisville. And so I was a member of the Oldham County Chamber of Commerce. You know, I'd always recommend people be a member of business organizations where they work. I just marched into the director of the Chamber of Commerce with my list of conditions in my lap. And I didn't read them off just the way I did to you. But I said, you know, Rick, what I'm looking for is a small business that would have a consistent workforce of people who are serious about what they're doing and they're hanging around, but they're not real type A kind of people you know, and they do stuff that, that has a mechanical aspect to it. And he said, yeah, I know where that is. Down on road 393, if you go down this gravel road, you'll see a company called Product Haley Equipment. And I said, where? I just couldn't even picture it. In Oldham County, I thought I knew where all the businesses were. I didn't know where this one was. And he said, why don't you go talk to him? He said, they have a small workforce. They manufacture conveyor systems. They sell all over the world. Real nice family-owned business. So I made an appointment and I went in and talked to him. And so basically, you know, I described to the manager, I said, I'm, you know, my work centers on getting to know employers and getting to know people with disabilities and finding jobs with mutual benefit. And I know a young man who I think has a lot of mechanical aptitude. And, you know, I'd like to learn more about the kinds of work that you do here. You know, Rick, the Chamber of Commerce referred me to come down here. He thinks that you might have work where Tim could contribute. And I'd like to see that too. You know, could I set up a time to sometimes to spend some time here and, and see what's going on? So I really just followed that sequence in the seven phase sequence. Mark, the manager, would introduce me to other workers, say, Here, this is Milt. He's helping a guy look for work. He'd like to learn more about what you're doing. You know, be nice to him <laughs> and answer his questions, you know. And so, I did, you know, working on down the, you know, the seven phase sequence, I got to the what they're doing part and I noticed this one assembly and I thought, man, that, that's pretty complicated for me, but I could see Tim doing it. It was called chain as part of a conveyor system. And so I talked to him 
about this this task. And, and I said, you know, I think that could be a real good starting task for Tim if he could work here part time. And he said, yeah, yeah, that, that could work fine. And so I went to the next phase and I said, well, I said, how do people learn it, which is phase two. And he said, by an experienced worker. And I said, could I have a couple experienced workers show me how they teach a new employee? And so there were two experienced workers, one of whom was Nancy and the other was Robert, who you see at the riveting machine behind Tim. And so I could really see Robert connecting. I mean, Nancy was perfectly nice person, but the way Robert showed me and the way Tim learns and all of that, I could see that being a nice connection. And so I went to Mark and I said, could Robert be the person to provide instruction for Tim? And, you know, and I had a chance to get to know Robert. I had a chance to get to know Mark and Nancy, and uh, there was a guy named Bob, uh, Robert and a Bob there, and they knew what I did, and, and I'd give them, I gave them some background on Tim, and I gave Tim some background on them, and um, they hired him. So here's kind of the, the takeaway around who's not ready for me. Who changed? You know, I mean, we were four years older, both of us. So Tim, you know, was four years more mature for sure, but what made the real difference was what I made available to Tim, I guess is the best way of saying that. So before at Shaw's Grocery, it was a job placement mentality, you know, seeking employment based on available work, whereas a product handling equipment incorporated devoted time to know Tim, which was a blast, and his interests, talents, and conditions for success. Something to talk to the employer about, right? Arbitrary, open-ended tasks without a connection to his interests. So these were these non-ending tasks. No wonder he wouldn't stay with them. There, there were tasks with that end and of no interest to him, but show him something he's interested in doing, and he's right there. So on mechanical tasks, where it's clear when it's completed and finished, he went on to learn other sub-assemblies, and they didn't ask me to come teach him. They proceeded to do that. I went back on a follow-up visit, and he was doing other assemblies, you know, which to me is indicative that his client role, his Milton client role was tiny, and his employee role was big. And, you know, one of the problems that Tim experienced, and that was still when I was there, because I was there, you know, to provide advice to them or to Tim probably for his shift for a couple of weeks. And then after that, I would just do drop-in visits. But one of the things Tim struggled with was taking breaks, you know, because everybody just kind of stopped working and take a break together and learn how to stop working. Job coach, employment specialist, provide all the instruction at the grocery the product handling equipment, typical instruction and support for the new employee was studied and facilitated. So Robert, Nancy showed me how to do it so I knew how they taught. And I knew the job well enough that there were some question about the task. They could come to me and, or Tim could come to me. Relationships were a secondary consideration at Shaw's Grocery. I didn't pay any attention to the people there, honestly. And I played a lot of attention to the people at product handling equipment. I mean, if they had been, you know, the wrong people, I wouldn't have proceeded, you know, they would need to be good, trustworthy people who could take a personal interest in Tim's success. So this and the CBA in combination, you know, I'd had a chance to learn a bit about. So what implications does the seven-phase sequence have for job development messaging? You know, it was very different. You know, I said, can people experiencing this task show me how they teach the task so I can see how they teach new employees and how Tim would learn if he would be hired here? That's a very different message than can you teach me to do the task so I can teach Tim? We'd both still be there <laughs> because, as I said, I'm not real mechanically inclined, uh, but Tim is. So what does this mean 
um, in terms of how we do businesses within our agencies. Well, for me, it was just a major shift and a refreshing one, I would add, because everybody knew I was there when any confusion about who was doing what and why. So this is another book on systematic instruction, the seven-phase sequence being a part of this. And then, of course, along with that, learning the classical method, content, and process aspects, which you need to understand for the correction phases, phases five, six, and seven of the seven-phase sequence. You've been listening to an Imagine More podcast. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to review us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And go to imaginemore.org.au for more great content. Thank you.